Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it is Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Today, Glenn Greenwald. Now, Glenn Greenwald is an award-winning, Pulitzer-winning journalist who... I suppose is most famous uh, for the Snowden revelations a few years ago. But he's a kind of iconoclastic journalist. He's come into some controversy amongst a lot of progressives in the United States more recently because of his critique, I suppose, of the Democratic Party establishment uh, and appearances on, on Fox News as well. I think he's a really interesting journalist. I actually respect, obviously, a lot of a lot of the journalism he's done over the years. Uh, he's an anti-authoritarian. Uh, he's also done really good work on Brazil, where the far-right president Bolsonaro is obviously wreaking mayhem. But I want to talk to him about our differences. I think this is a really interesting discussion. Just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, the podcast is all about offering an alternative to a broken corporate media uh, and also having some fun, offering optimism. We've got loads of stuff, as you can probably see, uh, but we want to do more. So if you can support us, please use the support function in the description or be a regular supporter on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 and then you can have a say over who we talk to and what we do. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It just helps get the message across and subscribe and spread the word. With all of that, have a little listen to, to, to Glenn. I am very, very honoured today to have one of the world's most distinguished journalists, an award-winning, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, no less, Glenn Greenwald. Glenn, such an honour. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Owen. We're just talking about the fact that we've been interacting for so many years on Twitter that I actually never realised that this is the first time we've communicated more like human beings than than before. So I'm very excited to expand the nature of our interaction. It's great I'm glad to be with our, you. our online relationship has been taken to a whole new level, which is which is a big. It is. Thing. It's exp- it's ex- escalating. It's really escalating, <laughs> hugely escalating. I apologise. I mean, and I keep having to apologise for views for my. My hair, which is attracting often more attention than my actual political views, which is unfortunate, and this will become an ever-growing problem. But you're obviously speaking to me from Brazil. We'll talk about Brazil a bit later on. I just just kick off. I want to kick off because, you know, that Edward Snowden story, which I know you must be sick of talking about, but it's so important. And you know what? It's nearly a decade ago, and it had such an impact, but there'll be a whole younger audience who may not know so much about it, about the significance of it. So why, with the vantage point now, the best part of a decade, what, you know, if you just sum up quickly what the revelations were, but now with a kind of wider lens, a historical wider lens to put it in context, what were the significance of those revelations? Yeah, so, you know, obviously for, I sometimes I forget this, and as you get older, you forget that 
younger people haven't lived through the same history as you've lived through and it becomes kind of ancient history to them. But if you go back to like the mid 1990s when the internet really began first proliferating and becoming a prevalent presence in our lives, the excitement about it as an innovation was due to the fact that it was going to be free and open, that it would be a way we can communicate with one another as human beings and organize as human beings without the intervention of centralized government power or centralized corporate power. That was what made it so exciting. It would be anonymous. It would be limitless. It would be free. And gradually over the years, the government and the corp and corporations began consolidating their control, often in ways that were unseen. And obviously the September 11th attacks made that pretext, gave them the pretext to do that with much greater aggression than they had previously been doing so. And so by the time Snowden contacted me in, in 2012, at the very end of 2012, when he was working inside the National Security Agency, the American equivalent of the GCHQ, he contacted me because he was so concerned about what he was seeing, namely that the NSA had decided that there could be no privacy at all on the internet, that literally there should be no privacy in the digital age. They wanted to ensure that they had the ability in the words of documents that he ended up leaking to me to be able to collect it all, sniff it all, analyze it all, store it all. And without the knowledge of anyone, including some of our highest elected officials, the NSA and its allies in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, set out to implement a program of ubiquitous mass surveillance in which every single thing that you do on the internet from browsing to communications to sending and receiving emails to chatting is collected and stored and then if they want analyzed and assessed by these agencies and the documents that he furnished me while i was at the guardian at the time for just a few months revealed for the first time just how extensive the invasion of this privacy was by these agencies ostensibly operating within a democratic society and yet doing this extraordinarily consequential thing without the knowledge, not just of the population, but I remember key members of the US Congress and committees, national security committees and parliament in the UK writing op-eds on The Guardian saying that even they had no idea that this was being done and that's why it made such an impact. In terms of foreign policy, I'm really interested in this because, and I, I wonder what you think there's been a collective failure amongst all of us in terms of, let me just explain. So uh, I remember a few years ago, I remember waking up, this is very bizarre. I woke up and uh, I had various people from Alabama calling me a disgraceful communist on Twitter. I thought, what have, what have I done this time? And I'd written a piece about Obama's drone strike war and Fox News had done a segment uh, calling me a, uh, a jerk and a laughing hyena. Googled, hyenas don't laugh. So factually incorrect. But, um, you know, I mean, you know, the Democratic establishment, if we look back, Democrats, Vietnam War, they escalated it. Uh, they started the carpet bombing of uh, Southeast Asia, notwithstanding the later uh, role of Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, of course, many of the Democratic establishment voted for the Iraq War, the invasion of the Iraq War and so on. And under Obama, we saw the escalation of the drone strikes and so on. But I wonder if there's been a failure on two different wings, one which is focusing, you know, those who would have critiqued uh, Obama's foreign policy have now focused their attention on Trump's domestic policies. And those who kind of think, well, actually, you know, a focus on Trump is disproportionate given the past foreign policy record of the Democrats. You know, if I think about, you know, at the moment, airstrikes under Afghanistan under Trump, you know, last year killed 700 civilians more than any point since 2001, 2002. He's had more drone strikes than Obama. He's revoked the rule reporting drone strike deaths. 
And I kind of wonder, I mean, because I want to talk about Trump and Trumpism, has that scrutiny of Trump's foreign policy? And another point on that, I remember when he did the, uh, all these liberals, he said, Trump is a fascist. Then as soon as he starts bombing Syria there, he's presidential. Uh, but do you think we've, there has been that failure looking back collectively to, to sort of hold Trump to account for his foreign policy crimes, if you like? I think the thing that we have to realize about foreign policy in the United States is there's really no such thing as a Republican foreign policy and a Democratic foreign policy. There's a bipartisan consensus about how foreign policy ought to be conducted. I got my start as a journalist when in 2005, I created a blog essentially to write from a civil libertarian perspective about the erosion of basic civil liberties in the name of the war on terror being conducted by George Bush and Dick Cheney, things like imprisoning people without due process, eavesdropping on them without first getting warrants, all of the basic rights that we were supposed to be guaranteed by the Constitution and by the foundation of the Republic. And my platform grew very rapidly because I got so many supporters and so many readers from the Democratic Party and from liberals who were ecstatic about the critique I was voicing of George Bush and Dick Cheney. And then when Barack Obama had this war with Hillary Clinton in 2007 and 2008, that people have forgotten over who was going to be the, the nominee, there was very little distinguishing them ideologically. One of the very few things that made me more excited about Obama than Clinton was the fact that as a law professor, he was speaking more eloquently and more passionately in critiquing the abuses of the war on terror than Hillary Clinton was, who seemed supportive of them. She had very famously voted as a senator to support the Iraq war of George Bush and Dick Cheney, while Obama had the very good fortune not to be in the Senate at the time, when I'm certain he would have voted yes, but was representing a very liberal district in the State House in Illinois, and so voted no. But also he was critiquing Guantanamo. He was critiquing the idea that you can kill people or imprison them without due process. And then he got elected and almost every one of those policies continued unchanged, and some of them actually expanded. So George Bush had a theory that really bothered me, which was that you can detain even American citizens by calling them a terrorist without a trial, and they did that. Or you can eavesdrop on American citizens by calling them terrorists without warrants, and they did that. Obama expanded it to say, I can target American citizens for assassination by drone without even having to go to a court and present evidence that they're guilty, and then did that when they killed the American-born cleric on Warawaki in, in Yemen, and then two weeks later killed his 16-year-old American-born son. And that's what made me realize that the CIA, the Pentagon, don't have any political parties. They're permanent power factions that exist in Washington, and they really don't tolerate or permit the kind of changes that Obama was promising to make during the campaign. And so when Trump got into office, he had come off a campaign where he was vowing not to be a pacifist, but to escalate bombing campaigns against terrorists. He said on the campaign trail, quote, we're gonna bomb the shit out of them. He talked about killing terrorist families. But the one break that he had with the foreign policy consensus was he said these kind of regime change wars where we go in and we change the regime of a country ostensibly to make it better, but in reality, in our own interest, we go into Libya and we take out Muammar al-Qaddafi, we go into Iraq and take out Saddam Hussein. These are mistakes and I'm not gonna start new wars to engage in regime change. So you're right, he did escalate bombing campaigns he inherited in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan and did it more recklessly than Obama and Trump and killed more civilians as a result. But he also, it is true, did not get the United States involved in new conflicts, in new wars, which is the first president you can say that about, arguably since Jimmy Carter, maybe you have to go back even further. But I think 
that's the key thing to realize is foreign policy bipartisan. Support Saudi Arabia, support Israel, use military force in the Middle East to secure access to the, the, the region's energy reserves and, 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 and fortify Israel, support NATO. Trump questioned some of those, and that's why he ended up at war with the CIA and with the security state agencies, because he kind of crossed taboo lines of saying, do we still really need NATO? Do we still really need troops in Germany when the original pretext was we need to protect incursions from the Soviet Union into Western Europe when the Soviet Union no longer exists? And you saw that tension between some of these factions and Trump. But when you look at the Trump record on foreign policy, it very much ends up being a lot more of a continuation of what preceded it than some kind of grand deviation from it. I mean, President Eisenhower famously coined the term or popularized the military industrial complex. And Trump last year said, and there's this meme on the internet from The Onion, the worst person in the world has made a point you agree with or something. Because he said the Pentagon wants to do nothing but fight wars so that all of these wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. I mean, I guess the guy's so crude, he just just detailed uh, the the uh, the existence of something which other presidents maybe would be uh, less subtle about uh, or more subtle about. Sorry. So what what is? I mean, how would we sum up the military industrial complex in twenty twenty one? How does it work? Revolving doors, lobbying. Uh, you know, I mean, here we have this, you know, everywhere, revolving door between government positions, the private sector and so on. How does that operate? How would you describe the contours which pressure any administration to engage in these sorts of foreign conflicts? I think it's really interesting to go back and, and look at that farewell address from Dwight Eisenhower. He delivered it in 1961 after serving eight years as president during the height of the Cold War. He was the president throughout the 50s. He was, of course, a five-star general, a war hero from World War II that helped lead the United States to victory and it's with his allies in, in World War II. And after spending eight years as president and seeing this enormous buildup of the national security state after World War II, he had 15 minutes to address the nation in his farewell address from the White House as he was about to give way to President Kennedy. And he chose to warn the country about the dangers of the military industrial complex, by which he meant and described it as being this permanent power faction that is becoming so powerful that it's essentially shaping every sector of society, academia, research facilities, civil society, and most importantly of all, he said it's becoming more powerful than even the elected leaders because he had often tried to challenge it as supposedly the most powerful person in the world, certainly in the United States, and was unable to do so. And he was warning that this faction, this military industrial complex composed of a security state that operates in the dark, was a threat to democracy. Now, Owen, remember, this was before, essentially before the huge buildup of that community as a result of the decade or 15 year long Vietnam War. And it was before Ronald Reagan radically escalated it in the name of the Cold War. And it was obviously before the attack on September 11th, which rejuvenated it and brought it to all new heights. So what you're talking about are these agencies that operate with no democratic accountability. You know, I was describing to you the Snowden revelations in, in response to the first question. And the thing I always say is to me, the Snowden story was much less about questions about surveillance and privacy, though those were important, and much more questions about democracy. How can you say that you have a democracy in anything more than name only when you have an agency like the NSA that can do something as consequential as convert the most significant human innovation of the last several decades, if not the last couple of centuries, the internet, 
from what it was supposed to be, this unprecedented tool of liberalization and egalitarianism and liberation into the most unprecedented control of coercion, monitoring and control in human history without any democratic debate whatsoever. And that's what these agencies do. The CIA, the Pentagon, the, 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 the FBI, it doesn't matter if you vote for Democrats or Republicans. They continue to wield the same amount of power, do exactly whatever it is that they want. And that's what we're really talking about when we talk about this military-industrial complex. It's, it's something that exists outside of the structures of democratic accountability. In terms of Trump and Trumpism, and this is a really interesting debate that I have friends, close friends, we just disagree on this. We just have disagreements. So it's worth teasing out. And I know it's a very live issue on the US left, which is about the nature of Trumpism as a domestic political force. So there's one wing that would say this is incipient fascism. They would uh, note the his rhetoric on Muslims, on Islam, the Muslim ban implemented as Rudy he said, was as far as he legally could go to implement banning Muslims from entering the United States. Uh, they would point to Charlottesville, uh, very fine people, Nazis. And of course, more recently, the capital insurrection. And more generally, the kind of rhetoric which you'd associate more with an an all ban in Hungary or, but there are others who say, no, this guy's a demagogic reality TV star. who doesn't really have a coherent ideology. He's been used as a bogeyman by the democratic establishment to often just coerce more progressive voters to come into the democratic fold. Come what may. Now I have to say I'm on the floor. I would be on the former. I would say he's, this is incipient fascism. I'd point, you know, I've been chased enough down the streets by Nazis wearing MAGA hats to come to that conclusion. What do you think on that? And kind of maybe tease out your, your your thoughts on it, because it is a very big controversy, particularly on the US left. So, I, you know, I think maybe my views are informed in part by, by the fact that I have lived in Brazil since 2005. My husband's a member of the Brazilian Congress as part of the Socialist Party in, in Brazil, which is now under the rule of Bolsonaro. I have spent a lot of time and attention uh, reporting on British politics, um, in part because I was at The Guardian, in part because I found the ascension of Jeremy Corbyn to the top of the Labour Party, to the leadership of the Labour Party, and the reaction to it so important for understanding the current forces in the democratic world and see them very connected, interconnected, as what happened in the United States with the election of Trump. So I don't think you can talk about Trumpism or Donald Trump or the Trump movement or his victory in 2016 without understanding the context out of which it grew, which was eight years of rule by the Democratic Party under President Obama. President Obama was such a charismatic and talented political figure, you know, a once in a generation political talent that it masked the fact that underneath his presidency and his popularity and his reelection, the Democratic Party basically collapsed. They lost control of both houses of Congress. They lost dozens, you know, not, I don't know how many, but a large number of state houses, governorships. The Democratic Party shrunk to a tiny portion of what it had been when Obama took office in its size because the ideology that has been ruling Washington for 30 years, going back to Bill Clinton, continuing with George Bush and Dick Cheney, and then certainly being the dominant ideology of the Obama administration, which is neoliberalism, is a failed and rotted policy. And it's causing millions upon millions upon millions of people to suffer greatly, to have their economic security taken from them. The middle class is shrinking. The same story as we see in Great Britain, which is why so many people turn to Brexit. The same story as we see in Brazil, which is why a country that for 16, 14 years, four consecutive elections voted for the Workers' Party 
a party formed by labor leaders like Lula da Silva and elected the first female president, a former Marxist guerrilla in Dilma Rousseff, suddenly lurched to Jair Bolsonaro. Millions of people in the United States, millions, Owen, twice voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. What explains that? Obviously, there are some of those people in Brazil. There are some of those people in the UK. There are some of those people in the United States who are just genuinely racist, neo-Nazis, white nationalists, white supremacists. There are some of those. But I don't think that you can explain what's happening in the United States, what's happening in Western Europe, what's happening in Brazil, simply by writing everybody off who voted that way as being a neo-Nazi or a fascist or a white nationalist. What they're looking at are their lives and they're turning against the ruling class and the dominant ideology. And whoever can come and demagogue and promise to destroy the ruling class that they validly blame for their eroding security and for the future of their families, the fact that more Americans up to 30 years old are living with their parents than at any time since the Great Depression. People can't start families until they're 35 or 40 years old and maybe then have one child, maybe if they can scrape together enough money. You get out of you know, graduate school or you go to get a PhD, you're 150 or $200,000 in debt and the only jobs you can get are $13 an hour research jobs with no health care. People are furious. Their communities have been stripped of their factories and their jobs. They've been shipped overseas. Their communities are wrecked by opium, opioid epidemics and high rates of depression and suicide. These are crucial factors in explaining political realities of how people are voting and why they're voting that way. And so, yes, you can find people who are Trump supporters who say disgusting, racist, fascist things. Trump himself, though, was a weak can't was a weak president. He was a weak president. He got very little done. What he did get done, like you said before, bombing Syria, were things that the CIA wanted him to do. When he bombed Syria, Hillary Clinton said, I agree with him that that's what he should do. When he did things like cutting taxes on corporations and on the wealthy, that's something Republicans and Wall Street, who have funded both parties, were very happy with. But the really extreme stuff, he really had a hard time doing because the establishment in the United States is very powerful. And they're not going to let somebody just come in and there was, there's never been a remote possibility of a coup in the United States. And so I think that if you want to talk about Trumpism, you have to look at the factors that gave rise to it. Why did the most unpopular game show host, the most unpopular candidate in modern political history manage to ascend to the White House? Why did somebody like Jair Bolsonaro, relegated to the fringes of political life for 30 years, take over control of the sixth largest country in the world? Why did Brexit pass and he forced the UK to, to, to remove itself from the EU despite abundant evidence that it would harm most those who voted for it. It's because people are angry and they're validly angry. And I think that that has to be a critical prism through which we understand these movements. I mean, I mean, this is something, when I've made the arguments about economic insecurity driving Trumpism before, what, what I've been hit back with um, is back in 2016, most low-income voters voted for Clinton. And as all Republican candidates, not an exception with Trump, most richer Americans voted for the Republican candidate, who was Donald Trump in 2016. Um, and this time round, there was actually a shift amongst higher earners towards Trump and a shift away from Trump amongst lower earners. I mean, how much there... With that kind of... Because the thing is... with Let me just make sure I understand your premise. So... For me, what the data shows, what I think there's a consensus about, and I'm not sure if this is different than what you just said or the same, I just want to make sure we're working with the same mm -hmm. premise, is 
there was a much larger percentage of voters who are African-American, Latino, and other non-white voters who voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than voted for Donald Trump in 2016. His numbers among those groups increased after he spent four years as president. And the reason why Joe Biden won states that in 2016, Hillary Clinton failed to win was not because there was some huge outpouring of Latino voters and black voters and poor voters on behalf of the Democratic Party as a response to Trump. It's because huge numbers of affluent white suburbanites who traditionally voted Republican abandoned the Republican Party and went and voted for Biden. And so in all these big cities, like outside Philadelphia, outside of Detroit, outside of Milwaukee, not in those cities, but in the suburbs where white affluent managerial class, professional managerial class people live, they abandoned the Republican Party and voted for Biden. And that was why those states swung in his favor, not because there was an uprising of non-white people or poor people against Trump, but because there was an uprising of affluent white people who viewed the Democratic Party as more in their interest than the Trump-led Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, the point I was making was more that, I mean, I'm kind of repeating a criticism directed against me, which was right. I've made the arguments about economic insecurity. And I would point to Rust Belt states, which obviously voted Democrat in 2012 and then went into the Republican column in under Trump. There was a reason for that. And actually, it's true. For example, more low-income voters voted Republican in 2016 than in 2012. But the point that was always put to me was, well, why is it most low-income Americans, regardless of shifts, voted for the Democrats in 2016, whilst most richer Americans voted for the Republicans? And that complicates the argument that I was making, which was about economic insecurity, given the class divide that existed, though race intersects with it, meant that lower income voters were more likely to vote for Clinton than Trump, for example. That was it. Yeah. I mean, look, when you're talking about a country of 200, 300 million people with a history as complex as the United States, it's very easy to kind of grab data points that tell whatever story you want to tell, which I, I think we need to be careful not to do meaning not just other people, but also myself. Um, but I think a couple of things are important to note. The first is that if you look at the power centers in the United States where the real money resides, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the lobbying class in Washington, the money both in 2016, but especially in 2020, overwhelmingly went to Joe Biden and not to Donald Trump. Wall Street was a huge admirer of Barack Obama. In 2008, he outraised John McCain on Wall Street by an enormous amount. In 2012, they loved both Mitt Romney and Barack Obama because Romney came from Wall Street, so it was a bit more balanced. But in 2016 and 2020, the power centers in the United States where the, the biggest wealth resides, Wall Street, K Street, Silicon Valley, overwhelmingly. Now, there's a very complex interaction between class and race in the United States. So because of the legacy of slavery and because of the legacy of Jim Crow, there's still a huge wealth disparities that are based on race. So if you look at the bottom, say, 10th percentile in wealth or the bottom 20th percentile in race, there's a huge disproportionate share of poor people in the United States who are African-American and Latino as compared to the overall population. And many, many black people in America simply will never vote for a Republican because of the Republican Party's role throughout the 60s and 70s in, avoid, in, in, in opposing civil rights, and then into the 80s and 90s in opposing things like school desegregation uh, and other kinds of programs designed to lessen race inequality. So there's a lot of people who are voting not based on class interest, but based on these complex racial 
dynamics that continue to drive American politics. So you can look at huge numbers of African Americans in Detroit and Philadelphia who happen to be in the bottom 10 percentile of wealth and say, look, they're all voting for Democrats. That's because poor people like Democrats. But I'm not sure that that really says that. I think what it says is that African Americans, understandably, perceive the Democratic Party as more in their interest than the Republican Party, although Trump made a lot of inroads in African American votes. So all I'm really saying is, I think that if you you have this kind of narrative that gets created by what kind of people? By people who have public platforms. These people who have public platforms, whether they're white or African-American or Latino or Asian, have gone to the best schools. They've gone to Princeton and Brown and Yale and Harvard. They spent their childhood in $60,000 a year prep schools and not in public schools. They now work at the New York Times or NBC News. And they're creating a narrative about how groups of people think that very often is wildly disparate from what the actual data shows. And I think that's because in addition to having a racial dynamic, there's a huge class dynamic in how politics plays out that is very, very rarely represented by the media narrative. Why? Because the media is overwhelmingly people who went to the best schools, who are now privileged in all kinds of professional ways, who make a lot of money, who have big platforms, and they're not really in touch with how the people on whose behalf they're purporting to speak are living, and that's where you find this cleavage. But Phil, I want to ask you about Biden, the Democrats, and also the U.S. left as well. I'm really interested in what your thoughts on that. But before I did, just find on the Republicans and Trumpism. I mean, I've been to Hungary, and I've interviewed dissidents in Hungary. And Hungary, I think, is a really interesting, disturbing case study because Fidesz, the ruling party, was a, well, it's, it was a liberal party. It styled itself as a liberal party. It was a member of the Liberal International. Uh, and then it, it radicalized in power. It was a, you know, a center-right liberal party, which in power under Orban, Viktor Orban, who was presented for a long time as this great post-Stalinist uh, reformer who was, you know, one of the great liberal reformers of Central and Eastern Europe. And obviously, you know, that's a, it's essentially a quasi-dictatorship, Hungary. I mean, it's a very unpleasant, authoritarian, Muslim-hating, migrant-hating, anti-Semitic regime, which has done everything it can to squeeze civil society. And I suppose my question is, isn't that where the Republicans are heading towards, it's the Orban kind of direction, where a, a centre-right party, which under Reagan, obviously transformed, as the British Conservative Party did, uh, and is metamorphosizing into something quite similar to Hungary, which is a authoritarian regime that doesn't respect traditional uh, democratic norms and and that the capital, if you like, and the response of lots of Republican voters seems to flesh that out. What do you think? So I think, first of all, I think it's a really interesting comparison, right? I, I mean, I've you know been asked so many times, why is it that you talk differently about the dangers posed to democracy in Brazil versus democracy posed to, to the dangers posed to democracy in the United States. And I say because they're two very different countries with very different histories and very different structures. And I think the same is true about the US and Hungary. So let's look at Hungary. I think it's a really instructive example. The minute the coronavirus pandemic started to spread throughout the world, Orban seized on that instantly essentially to declare martial law, which is what every authoritarian, real authoritarian does. They seize on threats to the public health, the public security to increase their power. Trump didn't do any of that. In fact, when the coronavirus came to the United States, he was criticized for not 
engaging in enough authoritarianism. They were criticizing him, the Democratic Party was, for not invoking laws that let him come into your industry, that would have imposed lockdowns on people. That's because Trump is too lazy. He's too uninterested in the mechanics of authoritarianism. Trump always cared about personal grievance and the like. Same with the incredibly serious protest movement that often turned into riots throughout the summer in the United States is the perfect pretext for deploying the military onto the streets and taking over the streets with the military in the name of the, in the public order. Trump did a small amount of that, but very little. The Republicans wanted him to do way more. And I think that's in part because of the personality of Trump. He's just he, he's just he's just a, a, a kind of slothful blob. And to be a real authoritarian, you need to be a committed true believer or a brilliant tactician or have some kind of political talents and dedication that Trump doesn't have. But I think the bigger issue, Owen, is that the United States is still the biggest, most powerful and richest country in the world. Leave out biggest. I mean, richest and most powerful. And as a result, its institutions, meaning its ruling class institutions, don't care that much about Republican versus Democrat. What they care about is stability, because stability of the prevailing order is what keeps them in power and what protects and preserves and increases their wealth. And what you see in Washington now, in response to this kind of riot at the Capitol, where there were maybe a couple of dozen people, there were hundreds of people who entered, but maybe a couple dozen, a few dozen, who were actually violent, who intended violence, nothing remotely posing a threat to have a coup in the United States or anything like that. You now see Washington completely militarized. The military has taken over Washington. No citizens have a chance to confront a power like the United States, whereas Hungary, Brazil, India, these are much more fragile democracies. They're much newer. They're much less fortified. They're much less secure, where I think the threat is much more real. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, again, I got my start in journalism because of the overreaction, in my view, to the threat posed from the 9-11 attacks and what became the hysteria over the threat posed by Islamic radicalism. And I spent years and years and years arguing that the threat of Islamic radicalism was being deliberately exaggerated and melodramatized by power centers that had an interest in increasing their power, their control over the source of, of, the, of the flow of communication and information over their ability to seize power in the name of protecting us from that. And I see very much the same thing happening now. You're seeing this huge spate of censorship over the internet. You're seeing bills proposed that are designed to take the terrorism laws that were enacted in the wake of the 9-11 attack directed outwardly to foreign terrorism groups and proclaim essentially a new domestic war on terror inside the United States. So again, I think it's a huge mistake to view politics as through the primary prism of Democrats versus Republicans and say Republicans are authoritarian and Democrats are basically liberal Democrats. I think that there are obviously differences between those two parties, but there's a ruling class that is just as comfortable with Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden as they are with George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney. Those are, I, I think the person who said this best was Barack Obama. He said, you know, it's so amazing that Fox News constantly depicts me as this radical leftist, because if my policies were advocated by a politician in the 1970s and 1980s, I would be considered a moderate Republican. And he then went on to say, which is 100% true, that the reality is that the establishment wings of the Democratic and Republican Party play within the 40-yard lines, meaning there's not one on one side of the field and one all the way on the opposite. They're very close to one another, and there are differences that they end up fighting over 
are pretty minor compared to the consensus that they share. That was Barack Obama who said that. I think it's very important to not fall prey to this idea that there are two teams in the United States, one good, one bad. I know you're a critic of the Democratic Party, the Blairite wing of the Labor Party. So it's not like I'm telling you something you don't already know. I'm just saying for myself, the way I understand politics in the United States is I think it's very important to avoid seeing it through that prism. I see it much more as a kind of ruling class elite that has co-opted both the major dominant strains of both political parties and are very happy as long as one or the other continues to rule. Yeah, and I totally get, I mean, that point you make about a clampdown. In the 1930s, we had the fascist movement here led by Oswald Mosley, the, the black shirts, of course, and legislation was introduced by the conservative government supposedly to clamp down on their activities in the streets, kind of, um, kind of the, you know, where basically laying the foundations for militia, as it was seen. That legislation was never used against the far right, but it was used as, as recently as the 1980s against the miners, uh, during the minor strike. And it's obviously always be careful what you wish for. If you demand an expansion of state power, more often than not, you'll end up being used against uh, progressive movements. But I suppose just finally on that, I mean, in terms of that comparison... Exactly. If I, if, I could just, if I could just interject if I could just interject really quickly there, like one, just one example that I used that I remembered from a couple of days ago when with all this talk of a new domestic war on terror, exactly what you're saying is right. It'll be used against some people on the right, but it will, of course, be used against the left. And in 2011, there was a controversy because the London branch of Occupy Wall Street called Occupy London was declared by the London police in a secret document that got leaked to be a threat, a terroristic threat. There was a document describing terroristic threats facing the United Kingdom. And on that list was Occupy London. Of course, it's going to be used against any dissident group, whether on the right or the left, and probably more on the left than against the right, which is why it, th these kinds of movements are so dangerous. But is it the difference, though, I suppose, just, you know, because I, I do concede, as I've said, I think there's I think that's a very, very important point. But equally, I mean, Islamic fundamentalism is a within Western societies is a marginal fringe movement. What we're talking about in terms of a kind of ascendant far right is it has connections with a party of a, a party of government that, you know, the Repu there is a tradition within the Republicans in terms of its rhetoric. Uh, in terms of the sorts of people who align themselves with the Republicans. I mean, far-right extremists didn't see George W. Bush as their guy. They just didn't. In the same way as far-right extremists in this country did not see Margaret Thatcher as their person either. But now you end up with convicted far-right thug Tommy Robinson saying Boris Johnson's our guy. And it seems to me, isn't that the danger, that this demarcation between a so-called centre-right, however right-wing on the economy, and a far-right has kind of crumbled? And that does make it something of a threat in a way Islamic fundamentalism isn't because it has no mainstream purchase of any description. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. 
Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Well, first of all, I... I, I just, I guess I, I, I get that point, and I think that's a valid point, um, and I think that's a point worth worrying about. Then the question becomes: Do you worry about it in a way that's kind of sober and rational, or do you kind of exaggerate the threat that it poses? And I think there's a danger of doing the latter in a way that can be more dangerous than the threat itself. We've seen that so many times throughout history, where the proposed solution to an actual threat becomes more dangerous than the threat itself. I would say the war on terror ended up vastly more destructive, for example than the terror threat that it originally was created to combat. But, you know, this idea of extremism is something that 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 disturbs me a little bit in this context when we talk about, well, right-wing extremists didn't see George Bush as their guy. A certain kind of right-wing extremist didn't see George Bush as their guy, right? Like the kind of white nationalist, um, neo-Nazi, close the borders, uh, types definitely didn't see George Bush as their guy because he wasn't their guy. He wanted to open borders to drive down wages um, for laborers because he was representing these transnational corporations way more so than, say, white nationalist groups with whom he had almost nothing in common. But I think it's very difficult to say that right-wing extremists didn't see George Bush as their guy when we're talking about the person who launched the war on terror, who invaded and destroyed a country of 26 million people in Iraq, who set up worldwide torture regimes all over the world, who pioneered a program of kidnapping people off the streets in Europe and sending them to Bashar al-Assad and Egyptian torture chambers to be tortured, to create a, a floating prison in, prison in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where people were put and kept for 20 years and still counting without the slightest whiff of due process, that seems like white right-wing extremism to me. And so, you know, there's a kind of right-wing extremism that is accepted within mainstream circles that seems very dangerous to me, but it's talked about as less malignant and more benign precisely because it does have this mainstream purchase. And you know, I think that when history starts to judge the presidency of Donald Trump versus the presidency of George Bush and Dick Cheney, not in terms of the things they were saying and their rhetoric or their tweets, but in terms of the actual effect that they had on the world, hmm. I think you're going to find that what George Bush and Dick Cheney ushered into the world with all their mainstream acceptability and mainstream credence, which has grown significantly through to today, is much, much more destructive and much more toxic than anything Donald Trump managed to do. Notwithstanding the validity that I think your point has, that if we start out having a political party that really does join at the hip with white nationalists and neo-Nazis and kind of old school racists, the dangers from that can be very great as well. I question, though, the, the extent which those elements actually within the Republican Party as it's currently constituted. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Right-wing militarism, and, and it's very important. I mean, it's a very important point that white supremacists rightly should be seen beyond the pale, but right-wing militarists who call of, often themselves profoundly racist and on record saying profoundly racist thing about Palestinians or other victims of Western-backed oppression are seen as legitimate, and I completely agree. On immigration, just before we... 
I want to ask you about Biden. I mean, I would say, and people will be angry if I don't just put in my own point of view there. I mean, the studies in this country, for example, in Britain, show that immigration overall doesn't bring down wages. It can have an impact at the lowest, uh, kind of the lowest paid sections marginally, though margins do make a huge impact when you're low paid. But that can be counterbalanced by having strong trade unions, uh, a higher minimum wage, a getting rid of a so-called flexible labor market, which allows wages to come down. But anyway, there's probably a separate argument. Just on Biden. No, no, but, but, I, but, but Owen, just let me, tell me quickly on that, because, yeah, I know, I, I totally get why you want to interject for the same reason that I want to. So it's not my view that we should oppose immigration because immigration drives down wages. All I was saying was, when I first started writing in 2005, the idea of open borders, letting people in, kind of making immigration looser, was very much a right-wing policy proposal. That was something on the top of George Bush, George Bush's list, precisely because they did believe that it would drive down wages. And opposing open borders was something that had been a longtime view of union groups, of people like Bernie Sanders, of the traditional left, for the same reason that they believed that the worker would pay the price for immigration. I'm not saying that's my view. I'm saying that for a long, long time, the kind of corporatist right were advocates of lessening restrictions on immigration, which is why, say, white nationalists never saw George Bush as their guy, because he was very his ideology was much more aligned with the view of corporatism, at least as it understood the effects of immigration. On Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Biden, as far as I'm concerned, is an establishment Democrat with a history of associations with racists, which, funnily enough, his own vice president called him upon during the when when she was a, a rival candidate during the primaries. But isn't the point I mean this is what I think is interesting because you know I mean well I'm not here I'm not doing this to so many illusions in Joe Biden. But on the first point, this point you make about which is very valid about US militarism, which under successive Democratic Republican and Republican administrations has killed many, many huge numbers of people. And even the Iraq war, of course, might have happened under a Republican, but it had the support of establishment Democrats. And we've seen the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. That country plunged into blood and chaos uh, with destruction exported across the Middle East and beyond as a consequence, as well as support, bipartisan support for Saudi, the Saudi regime, which is carpet bombing Yemen, the worst humanitarian crisis on earth, which uh, Obama supported, let alone uh, Trump. But the point I debate, I had a discussion with Chomsky, and you know Chomsky's own views on this, but it's worth just spelling it out again um, a few weeks ago. And the point he made during the presidential election with those who said, you know, we shouldn't, the left should not just hand over its votes to Biden. How will we ever get leverage? Is the point about the climate emergency being the biggest single existential threat facing humanities, which will particularly hammer the global South, uh, potentially risking the lives of, who knows, countless tens of millions of people, that if we just think of one difference between Joe Biden and Trump, whatever our critique of Joe Biden, the Paris Accords, for example, which Trump left, and taking more action on the climate emergency, that is something, if we're talking about support for foreign wars and the devastation that causes, that is something which could, that itself is one clear huge difference which could make a huge impact, let alone, I don't know, revoking the Muslim ban, even if Biden has no answer whatsoever to the grotesque social and economic injustices that define the US. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, it's known Chomsky. Of course, the point he's making is a very well thought through and valid one. Um, that's true by definition, basically. Um, 
I question how much of a difference Joe Biden is actually going to make in terms of progress toward uh, arresting cataclysmic climate scenarios. Um, I'm not a climate scientist, so I try and defer to others who are experts in that field who believe that the Paris Accords, at the very least, if not sufficient, is not just a symbolic improvement, but a meaningful one. And so I have no objection to the argument that when it comes to climate, Joe is a improvement over Donald Trump and the Republican Party, people who voted for Biden and who urged others to vote for Biden on that basis, like Chomsky did, are making a completely cogent and valid point um, to which I would never object. I think it's it's true. But nonetheless, I think there has to be other considerations. Um, for one, I think that you have to look at the other side of the ledger, which is what are the what is the damage that Joe Biden is going to do that Donald Trump didn't do, not because he's a better person, but because he was just a weaker president. Joe Biden's coalition, his ruling coalition, Owen, there's been a realignment in American politics. Joe Biden's coalition are neoconservatives, almost all of whom supported George Bush and Dick Cheney and were the primary architects and advocates of the war on terror, the war in Iraq, are almost entirely migrated back to the Democratic Party. The CIA, the what we were calling the military industrial complex, the FBI, the security state, overwhelmingly are in the corner of Joe Biden. He's in a coalition with Wall Street and with Silicon Valley as well. There was enormous resistance to what Donald Trump did. There was an, the media in the United States, which has traditionally been very passive and obsequious in the face of political power, became incredibly cantankerous, incredibly adversarial, incredibly aggressive, which was great to see. I wish it were true for all presidents. It won't be, but at least it was true for one. The Congress blocked so many of Trump's initiatives, including Republicans in Congress who just told him no frequently. Courts struck down things that he wanted to do repeatedly, including his Muslim ban, until it was watered down to the point that they accepted it. He abided by those court rulings. Citizen protests were bigger than I've seen since 2002 and 2003 when people poured out into the streets by the millions to protest the Iraq war. You're not going to see any of that resistance to what this new ruling class coalition does with Joe Biden. If Joe Biden wants to start a new war, the media is going to stand up and applaud. There's not going to be any protest against it. If Joe Biden wants to expand free trade or um, engage in policies that help Wall Street or cut Social Security and impose austerity in the name of arresting the national debt, you're going to see very little resistance to that. If he wants to abandon his promises on immigration and keep kids in cages and tighten and, and fortify the deportations process the way President Obama did, the deporter in chief who deported more people from the United States than anybody, he's going to be able to do that. So I think that when you're comparing them, you can't just look at one issue, isolate one issue, as important as climate obviously is, and say, okay, that's the end of the story. You have to look at the other side of the equation in addition to what the, is the political strategy for always being faced with this miserable, dank, dark choice of extreme nationalism on the one hand or militarism and neoliberalism on the other. How do we ever escape Hillary Clinton versus Joe Biden or international capital versus white nationalism? When are we ever going to have other alternatives as a ruling ideology if we on the left or we as dissidents or we who are not in, in, in invested in either of those ideologies and see both of them as destructive, always pledge at the end of the day to fall into line 
behind neoliberalism because we're convinced that the alternative is worse. When will there ever be another alternative? And that's the problem that I have with the once every four year injunction delivered to the left that you're required to fall in line behind these people because the alternative is worse. And one of the reasons why I found what happened in the UK so instructive and so fascinating and so important was because the centrists, the neoliberals, the Blairites, and they exist in every country in the, in the democratic world, who constantly tell the left, you have to fall in line behind us, no matter how distasteful you find us on our ideology, because the alternative, the Republicans, the Tories, whoever are worse, completely abandoned their own advice and obviously preferred Boris Johnson or Theresa May to rule by Jeremy Corbyn and did nothing but sabotage his prospects for years because they understood that if they gave up control of their party to an ideology that they didn't support, they would forever lose it. And so they wanted to, they were willing to lose an election in the short term in order to fortify their power in the long term. And at some point, the left is going to have to have some strategy to escape this awful dichotomy. And I think that this constant demand that we always look at short-term immediate interest and never mid-term or long-term ones is at some point one that has to be escaped. Just finally on US politics, because the other thing I wanted to talk just before I let you go, it's a busy time, is, is about the media. But in terms of the US left, the US left now is a political force to be reckoned with in a way it wasn't before, surely. I mean, you we saw the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 reactivate the left. It attracted particularly lots of younger people. You know, I mean, Democratic Socialists of America, I'm not saying it's some big, you know, titan, political titan in US politics. It isn't that there's more probably self-described socialists in the US now actively than there's ever been, which is fascinating in 2021. But you've got the squad, AOC, Ilan Omar, they've been revitalized with the likes of Cory Bush. They themselves are surfing a wave. There's obviously something going on underneath the surface, which which they have bubbled to the top of. I mean, doesn't that, do you look at that and think, well, you know, you're right. You can see, I mean, the neocons, a lot of people, you know, but lots of people don't realize actually came from the Democrats. I wrote my master's thesis on the neoconservatives in the 1970s. They were Democrats who became disillusioned with Jimmy Carter and fled off to, uh, to the Republicans under Reagan. But do you think they will have leveraged bernie sanders is about to he's becoming chair of the senate budget committee surely at least the u.s left and also finally on that issue is that where you align yourself with because i find your ideas absolutely fascinating do you do you put yourself in their tradition you know and the first question i mean look i, I the, the, the the probably the two things about which i've been most excited in terms of politics in the Western democratic world over the last five years was the ascension of Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership of the Labour Party and the 2016 version of the Bernie Sanders campaign, which came very close to defeating Hillary Clinton in the Clinton machine and would have won, in my view, had the Democratic National Committee not cheated on behalf of Clinton. That really did coalesce an enormous amount of populist support, of involvement on the part of young people who were very passionate and optimistic about the ability to really change politics and create that kind of third alternative. At the end of the day, though, the DNC did crush it. It did win. Um, and the 2020 version of the Sanders campaign was kind of a shadow of its former self. And yes, I was extremely enthusiastic about the primary victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I very rarely urge my readers or people who support my work to donate to or vote for a particular candidate. I made an exception in her case because I saw its importance, not just for that district, obviously, but in terms of the kind of ability to create a framework for 
tearing out from the Democratic Party all of those rotted lobbyist loyal neoliberals and replacing them with people who have those politics. At the same time, even with all these victories, there are 435 people in the House. The squad has now six people in it, six out of 435. Um, Bernie Sanders, yes, he's going to be the the chairman of the, the, the Senate Budgetary Committee. He's one, maybe two out of 100 senators who have a populist left politics. So uh, you can ask me if, I, if I'm enthused by those people and I have my critiques of them for sure. I think they've been too willing to kind of give away their loyalty to the Democratic Party in exchange for way too little, which is a tactical critique. I'm excited by them. I like them. Um, but how many years is it going to take for them to actually exert real influence in the Democratic Party at the rate that it's going, it'll be something like 2090 by the time that they're anything close to a, a majority or even a, a kind of sizable coalition that can exert power in the Democratic Party that changes the face of that party. And that party is very good at making sure that those forces, when they arise, kind of get co-opted or marginalized, one or the other. So, you know, if you ask me, do I identify with the left? I really try hard to avoid labels, not because I think it makes me special, but because I think those labels can be confining because a lot of times you have some new political debate and you see in advance, okay, people on the left are over here and people on the right are over here. And if you've identified yourself as one or the other, it's kind of predetermined where you end up before you get to critically assess it. Obviously, the candidates that I've supported and have been enthusiastic about like Jeremy Corbyn, like the Workers' Party, like my husband's party in Brazil, like Eva Morales, like Bernie Sanders in 2016, are on the left. At the same time, um, I do see politics on the right challenging tech monopolies, um, advocating for greater resistance to corporate control that I also find promising. And I think um, the solution more quickly and more validly to how politics can be changed lies not in waiting for there to be 200 AOCs take over the Democratic Party, but in creating coalitions that transcend these left-right divisions, which often are more artificial than real, not always, but often, so that people who have at least things in common on single issues, even if they have differences on others, can come together and form majorities. I mean, just finally on that before I ask you about the media and, and I can let you go. Yeah, I mean, I know this is a live debate and Josh Hawley keeps coming up in this context. He's a Republican politician in the United States and Bernie Sanders and him both teamed up on a uh, stimulus check, $1,200 stimulus check to all Americans. And I mean, isn't the issue though, I mean, on a vote, on an issue by issue basis as politicians where there's, you know, you need to, you need to get a majority in order to get something through. That's one thing. But Josh Hawley... You know, he's someone, I mean, if you think one, you know, a classic example, where does someone stand in the struggle, as I as a socialist, between labor and capital? And Josh Hawley was a, a lawyer who defended corporate interests consistently. And on the Trade Union Federation, the AFL-CIO Trade Union Federation in the United States, they condemn him for his record on, on corporate interests. I mean, isn't that the problem? Their populism is often... It's faux populism. They will, I mean, the right, there's always been a strain of, of, of right-wing populism, which in practice ends up being very anti-union, as well as we're gay men opposed to the rights of people like us, opposed to other minorities. And that passing an issue in Congress is one thing, but forming any, these people still should be regarded as, as, the, mort, as, as the mortal opposition. 
uh, you know, they're the opposition when they're the opposition and they're allies when they're allies. You know, Joe Biden was probably the most important senator for ensuring that George Bush and Dick Cheney could invade and destroy Iraq. Joe Biden is the architect of the U.S. prison state that has put enormous numbers of African-Americans and Latinos and white people in prison and made the United States the greatest prison state of any country in the world. Joe Biden spent years as the most loyal servant to the credit card companies and the banks, making it harder for consumers to discharge bank debt and credit card debt in bankruptcy. Kamala Harris, as a prosecutor, was incredibly vindictive and aggressive about imposing jail time on nonviolent offenders. These are hideous, hideous things to do. But if you say to me, if you agree with Joe Biden or Kamala Harris on a particular issue, are you willing to work in an alliance with them if it means being able to win rather than lose on that issue, I'm going to say absolutely. So when I look at people on the right, like Josh Hawley or whoever, what Bernie Sanders did was look around the Senate and saw nobody willing to stand with him to hold up the COVID relief bill unless it entailed direct payments to people in need, except Josh Hawley. And so he said, I care enough about winning that I'm willing to stand next to Josh Hawley, even though next week on some other bill, I may be exchanging insults with him. Even though, and I think, Owen, that's the point is we excuse the most horrible things when done by people as long as they're in the same political party as, as us or on the same side of the political ideological spectrum in the grounds of pragmatic alliances. And then suddenly when it's somebody who has a different letter after their name, the idea of working in alliance with them becomes somehow repellent. And I think for me, that's the hump that we have to get over because that's what keeps people divided and preventing people from forming majoritarian coalitions that can actually challenge ruling class power. Finally, on the media, although I might ask you just a tiny thing at the end about Brazil, but about the media. Um, so you've got the, you've got a huge following, not just in the United States, you've got a very big global following, actually. And you set up this substack when you left The Intercept, um, where you get you, you sustain your journalism with with the huge support of of those who admire your award winning journalism. I mean, you've talked about a new media organization. I'm interested. What would that be? What would its kind of where would it sit? What would its purpose be? Because that's I think really interesting. The U.S. is quite. I, I mean, in this country, we have overwhelmingly right wing newspapers. Uh, we don't have uh, any left wing media outlets with a mass. Uh, a mass base. Uh, obviously, you have the odd lefty at the Guardian, like me. They got rid of my YouTube channel. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but in terms of you know the broadcast media in this country, we have this BBC, which follows a kind of establishment, often perspective, but allows occasionally people like myself to go on. In the US, I mean, you've got this. The newspapers, major newspapers, are largely centrist rather than right wing in the sense the British newspapers are very partisan right wing newspapers in this country. Um, and then you've got a broadcast constellation with, with off, you know, Fox News most famously. And I get this all the time. People criticize me, the sorts of people I, I've had on this, for example. I had Pierce Morgan on um, and got critiques for that. And, you know, who we engage with, who we debate. And I know there's this, because you go on Fox News and Bernie Sanders has gone on Fox News. He's been criticized by it. So I suppose, what's the function of it? Do you, is it about going on to reach an audience? Is it about challenging them? And what will your media outlet do? Where will it fit into this? Because you've spoken about going beyond partisan divides. What, what will its function be? I've mixed up two questions there. You get the gist though. What will the media outlet, what will your media outlet kind of, do you envisage it doing? And what do you see in terms of, you know, Fox News, 
sometimes on with people you've very very fiercely criticised in the past. What's the what what do you see as the kind of as dissenting journalists? What's our role often going into territory which we might feel very uncomfortable in? You know, it's so interesting, Owen, because the kind of stereotypical view of the British media was that news outlets in in Britain, except for things like the BBC that are that are you know quasi state um, media outlets, but private newspapers were always identified with a particular ideology or a party. And the United States kind of prided itself on not having that model. Oh no, we're journalists. We don't have any allegiance to one party or the other, or one ideology or the other. We just kind of report the facts. And for a lot of different reasons that I won't go into, but probably the most significant of which is the fact that the internet obviously created huge financial challenges for media outlets. How do you keep people paying for content when so much is free on the internet? They struggled to find a model of financial sustainability. And the, the model they finally settled on was, look, if we just feed people what they want to hear, modeling after the huge success of Fox News, which was, we're going to tell you conservatives, there's no media outlet for you. We're going to be your media outlet. We're going to look at the world through your prism so that if you want to understand the world through people who share your perspective, watch us. And that started siloing off conservatives into Fox News, which was incredibly profitable. CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Washington Post are now doing exactly that, but on the other side of the spectrum. They really are. And it shapes how everything is done, not just the opinion page, but also reporting. So one of the models that we want to do is not go back to that model of feigned neutrality or feigned objectivity. Obviously, I am not a person who will ever succeed in convincing people that I am neutral about anything, nor do I want to try. But I think that media outlets need to kind of proclaim their independence to say, we're not going to be attached to or loyal to this particular faction or that particular ideology. We're going to be open to trying to do the best we can to understand the world. You look at the success of people like Joe Rogan, whose audience on YouTube is much greater than almost, not almost, but than any of the, the, the even the top rated cable shows, precisely because he's just like a regular guy saying, I'm going to try and figure out the world as best I can and not care if the left side of my readership one day or my viewership is angry with me and the next day the right side of my viewership is angry with me i'm going to make either of them angry if i say what i think i think people really want that and respect that but the other thing that i think is really missing is what you alluded to which is this kind of ability for people who don't necessarily have exactly the same views or maybe even wildly different views to come together and have very passionate and strident debates but respectful and civil debates where you don't necessarily look at somebody who has different views than you do as being an evil person, but you look at them as a fellow human being who sees things very differently than you do. And by engaging them, maybe you're going to open up your own mind a little bit and understand better their perspective. You know, you mentioned our status as gay men. I mean, and maybe this is one way that informs my view on this is, you know, I grew up as, as a gay kid in the 19... 80s and Ronald Reagan's 1980s, the age of AIDS, and the idea of everybody who wanted to be openly gay could be so more or less in, in, in major cities, could run for political office, could have high positions in the media, was unthinkable. Gay marriage was unthinkable. And it's all happened. And I think the reason why is because as people came out, other people who were anti-gay said, oh, look, my favorite teacher, my neighbor, my cousin, my brother, my uncle, are gay and it broke down those demonization 
glasses that we were all taught to have and made us see each other as human beings. And it makes it much harder to demonize other people, even if we don't share their view. And I think we need so much more of that. It's intellectually more honest. I know that it's harder for me to talk to somebody that who doesn't share all my views, like you're asking me questions that are designed to kick and prod and push at what my views are, not even necessarily because you disagree with them, but because it, it's harder for me. And if I go on somebody who I know disagrees with me and who agrees with everything I'm saying, and you just kind of glide through it without having to use your critical faculties. It's intellectually healthier. I think it's societally healthier as well, because we may find that people that we're taught to hate are actually people with whom we have at least certain things in common, enough to kind of create a workable space to make society better by working with them rather than constantly against them. Very, very finely, Brazil. Bolsonaro, obviously, you, your writing has been uh, has been phenomenally well-received for, for very good reasons. Bolsonaro, a very dangerous right-wing demagogue. Brazil, parts of Brazil now, its biggest day in the midst of a COVID calamity. And yet, he could... If there was an election tomorrow, would he win? And what's, you know, is it possible that that Lula could could stage some sort of... Is it possible? Is, it, is, is, that, is that viable? Because obviously the Brazilian establishment stitched that up uh, so effectively. Yeah, anyone who writes off Bolsonaro is being very foolish. Um, whatever you want to say about him, he is an effective demagogue. He's very shrewd. He speaks the language of the working people authentically or not, um, which is why he won in the first place. Um, also, he what, he's very good at understanding what people vote on and what they don't vote on by tuning out the media. So one of the things that happened is, it's amazing, is in mid-2020, when lockdown started to be imposed by the, the governors of states against his wishes, he wanted to keep the economy open, obviously people started suffering. They couldn't survive if they didn't have the ability to go out, if stores weren't open, if restaurants weren't open, if they didn't have jobs. So the Congress voted for a monthly payment to these people, direct payments. And Bolsonaro was against it, but he lost in Congress. And soon as it got passed, he took credit for it. And so now when people get these checks, poor people especially who need them, they attribute these checks to Bolsonaro because ultimately politics is that simple. What is the government doing to improve my life? He's done a good job of making sure that people don't blame him for the COVID pandemic, even though he's absolutely to blame. They've created their own media ecosystem. So Globo can go on every night and attack Bolsonaro and blame him for everything. And they have their own WhatsApp and YouTube networks that continue to keep their faithful in line. Um, he has had some decline in popularity for sure. Um, I don't think his reelection is by any means guaranteed. Um, but it's also his defeat is also not guaranteed. And I think the really scary prospect right now is he's looking at what Trump just did in 2020, which is losing and then claiming election fraud falsely and absolutely plans to do that. Even before he won in 2018, Bolsonaro said in advance, if I lose, it will only be because of election fraud and asked his, quote, friends in the armed forces to be ready to intervene. When he did win on the second the runoff, he claimed that he really won in the first round and election fraud um, prevented him from winning in the first round and promised to present evidence showing that and he never did. So if he loses, the question is, are these millions and millions of fanatics that support him and who he has spent two years arming by loosening up gun control laws and having automatic weapons flow through the streets of Brazil, 
will you see something like what happened at the Capitol, but times 10,000? And I think that's the real danger of Brazilian democracy. Glenn, that was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. What a riveting interview. I don't think uh, a single person watching or listening to this will find even a second of that uh, uh, boring in the slightest. It was absolutely fascinating, full of so much. So, so interesting and lightning. So thank you so, so much. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your work, Owen, as you know, um, and I'm happy to come on anytime. I, I thought your questions were incredibly probing and smart, made me think and work. Um, so I, I really, those are the interviews I like best and I really appreciate it. No, you, you always make me think. So likewise, thank you, Glenn. All right, Owen. Cheers for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that chat. And if you do want to help us get even bigger and better, then all your support is appreciated, either in the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash owenjones84, where you will have a say over what we do and who we talk to. Um, please give us five stars on our iTunes to help get the message across. More people will listen, which is, you know, the plan. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll speak to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.